Welcome to the Vagina Varsity podcast. I'm Dishare and in our second episode, Best Babies, Feminist Mothers and the New India, you will hear a conversation I had with Professor Maithili Srinivas. She is an associate professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at the Ohio State University. Her work centers on the history of modern South Asia with a focus on women's and gender history, the history of sexuality and the family, colonialism and nationalism, and the cultural and political economy of reproduction. She is the author of Wives, Widows and Concubines, The Conjugal Family Ideal in Colonial India, and The Reproductive Politics and the Making of Modern India. Hello, Professor Srinivas. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I've been reading your latest book, Reproductive Politics in the Making of Modern India, and I think there are some really interesting ideas in there. So you begin the book at the inaugural conference of the International Committee for Planned Parenthood, and where uh, Dr. Sarvapalli Radhakrishnan begins his speech. And he was also the first vice president of the country, and he calls for family planning and birth control in order to tackle the issue of poverty. So throughout the history of birth control, how important has been this economic prosperity related argument vis-a-vis the other arguments of sexual freedom or women's emancipation? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the things I'm thinking through in the book is how exactly it is that arguments about poverty and economic prosperity became so central in the Indian case and also in many other parts of the world um, to the argument for contraception or birth control um, as an, uh, rather than uh, an argument for sexual freedom or for women's autonomy um, or a kind of a wider vision of sort of social transformation, right? That instead, um, you're absolutely right. So Radhakrishnan opens that conference with a a call that um, birth control and family planning is absolutely essential for uh, Indian development after 1947, that it's sort of a central component of bringing um, sort of economic modernization and economic development and prosperity into India. And the argument that he's making there is that the uh, rapidly growing population is going to um, is going to prevent any of the gains of economic development, right? That the population is always gonna outpace economic growth unless there is a model or a a vision for family planning. And so um, for Radhakrishnan and for many others, right? This becomes the way to sort of justify, explain and put forward sort of state-sponsored population control. So it's not just about individuals making a decision but rather that the state has a role because of this claim about the economy. Um, so I can, I can say more, but just to sort of start us off, yeah. So these are basically the Malthusian ideas which gain popularity around this time. So uh, why do you see that these ideas have regained their popularity and there are new Malthusian leagues during this time? Uh, what are the basic causes of these that you trace? Does this have to do with the famines that were happening around this time and the colonial policies? 
Yeah, I mean, so you're absolutely right that this comes, that this is a longstanding Malthusian idea. And um, just for some of your listeners, right, the, the argument that Malthus makes way back in the uh, early 1800s uh, is simply that population, human population will always exceed its means of subsistence, right? That population will always grow beyond the capacity of um, the land to produce food for that population. This is a pretty, in some ways, simple idea and one that is really long lasting, right? It's, it's we see this um, moving forward all the way through to today. So Malthus argued was not a proponent of birth control, actually. Um, Malthus argued for other methods to control population like celibacy and later marriage um, and didn't advocate birth control. But um, many people sort of took up his ideas, especially in colonial India, because Malthus's argument was if you don't control population through these means of later marriage, et cetera, um, population is going to be controlled for you, right, um, through large scale devastation, through um, famine, as you say, through war, through disease, and so on. And so uh, in the one of the arguments in the book is that uh, what I found is in the late 19th century, which in India, in colonial India, was a period of successive waves of massive famine. Um, and, and famine is, has a long, long history in South Asia. It doesn't start with colonialism. But these waves of famine beginning in the 1870s and through to the turn of the 20th century were some of the largest, um, so far as we know, um, that had really ever taken place in terms of how widespread they were and how severe and devastating they were. The colonial government also, in many cases, didn't, or virtually all cases, did not provide sufficient relief for the population. And so the result was actually massive mortality, um, you know, due to famine and associated epidemic disease. So it's, that's the context in which Malthusian ideas really took hold in India, especially among the British administration but also among an elite class of Indians, all of whom were sort of looking to explain the causes of poverty in India. Um, and so for the British administration, the argument was not that there's colonial mismanagement or colonial expropriation of um, wealth in India, but rather that um, the population was growing and so therefore famine was inevitable. So this was wrong on two counts. Uh, one, which was that, that population was not actually growing um, at a rapid rate in the late 19th century. Um, but that secondly, sort of they looked away from other causes of um, poverty under colonial rule. So um, instead population sort of became the thing to blame for Indian poverty. And when that happened, um, you know, Malthusian ideas sort of gained this resurgence. And that continued all the way through. I mean, you can see the traces of Malthusianism even in the Radhakrishnan um, argument before the Planned Parenthood conference, right? Um, but these folks call themselves neo-Malthusian in the sense that unlike Malthus, they supported birth control um, as a means to control human population. And so this idea took really deep root. And so India, in fact, was sort of one of the um, India and Indian intellectuals played an important role in sort of putting forward neo-Malthusian ideas globally and sort of making the case that population control was the primary way in which to enable sort of prosperity both in India and globally. Yeah, so uh, a lot of leaders and especially people 
uh, belonging to the elite populations were actually advocating for contraception and birth control but there were also many nationalist leaders who were not for example gandhi and even others including mm-hmm. uh, the first health minister like amrit kaur mm-hmm. uh, they were not supporters of artificial methods of contraception so could you talk a bit more about the kind of fears that these leaders had and maybe then move on to the rhythm method which gandhi reluctantly accepted mhm yeah sure um So yes, so there were there were many elites who were advocates of birth control um and this included the Indian women's movement it included Indian eugenicists um which I can talk more about um as well as sort of after, uh by the 1940s a kind of rising group of sort of development economists and experts um and of course it eventually became part of uh India's planned economic development under the first five year plan but this occurred uh despite the misgivings and active opposition of some uh gandhi for sure was among them as you say um <clears throat> there was a gandhi was sort of the most prominent example of uh another argument which was uh that rather than uh, in his terms rather than birth control what you really need is sexual self control right and it linked up to his ideas about brahmacharya and the need for what he would call what he called marital or married brahmacharya so he took this very long standing idea within um various new traditions around celibacy as a of um as a kind of way of life um or or during parts of life and actually argued that it was something that all people could participate in right you could be a married person practicing brahmacharya or celibacy and that would be the way to control uh to control birth so gandhi um and and you know gandhi spoke quite extensively on this and he was hugely persuasive um such that for example there were some members of the indian women's movement like mutilakshmi reddy for instance who was also sort of ultimately sort of came out in favor of birth control but sort of only in moments uh mutilakshmi would argue when self control uh was not possible um so there so his his influence in this regard was really deep and and really long standing and certainly amrit kaur who was the first health minister uh and a gandhian was also very much opposed to what she called artificial means of birth control but amrit kaur interestingly you know she did you know as a gandhian she did sort of speak out against uh against these sort of artificial means but at the same time during the period when she was health minister she did sort of open up the doors for some research uh on birth control methods uh and sort of you know didn't sort of close off the doors entirely right when it became part of the first five year plan um the rhythm method sort of came up as a sort of a in between place right between so called artificial methods and the kind of married brahmacharya that somebody like gandhi or even amrit kaur would advocate so the rhythm method was simply that you know if you could track women's menstrual cycles you could avoid you know having sex on days when somebody when the when the woman might become pregnant so um you know gandhi 
you know, in conversation with Margaret Sanger, the American birth control activist, sort of kind of in a way said, okay, you know, maybe this is a way it's it's linked to married, you know, sort of marital brahmacharya. Amrit Kaur sort of took that up. Um, and so there were actually, India had one of the first studies, uh, sort of scientific studies of uh, the rhythm method. It was sponsored by the World Health Organization at the request of uh, Jawaharlal Nehru and, uh, during his prime ministership, early in his prime ministership in the 50s. Um, so there was a study of the rhythm method. Uh, at the time, there were many birth control advocates who were really opposed to it. So Danvanti Ramarao, who was the head of the Family Planning Association of India, um, wrote that the rhythm method study was a waste of money um, and that they should go with other more effective methods. But uh, nevertheless, there was this there was this study. It was led by Abraham Stone, who was a, uh, an American scientist who worked in the Margaret Sanger Institute in New York. Um, and he was the, was the lead on this WHO study, uh, which ultimately was not terribly successful at uh, reducing birth rates through the use of the rhythm method. But they tried. They tried to find all kinds of ways to get um, people to be able to track their menstrual cycles. They made these like necklaces with beads that women could sort of move, you know, move a bead for each day to keep track of their cycles. Um, but overall, it turned out not to be super effective. And, and also the um, there was a lot of misrecognition and misunderstanding about the purpose of the beads um, as well. So people were not always accurate in sort of tracking their cycles. So uh, since we're talking about the advocates, I was uh, wondering that since around this time, there are international figures, as you talked about, uh, Mary Stopes or Margaret Sangers, mm -hmm. and then there are... Uh, Indian advocates like Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay, Dhanvanti Ramarao, mm -hmm. who are calling for birth control. Do you see any general distinction between how these international activists versus the Indian advocates understand the problem of reproduction and uh, tackle it in South Asia? That's an interesting question. I think each one of these activists that you're talking about sort of came in with specific ideas and claims, right? And India um, as a canvas sort of functioned in different ways for each of them. Um, that said, I wouldn't say that there was a kind of foreign approach and an Indian approach, uh, and I have that in quotes, to, um, to birth control. I don't think it breaks down in such a way. I think there's actually a lot of commonalities and shared views and alliances across those borders. Um, and so I think one of the things I'm interested in is the extent to which sort of feminist, so-called feminist activists working transnationally were sort of operating within these transnational networks across national boundaries in order to make their case for birth control. So just as one example, you know, Margaret Sanger, saw in India, so she was an American birth control activist. She did her, her initial work in the United States um, in various parts of the US. And then she sort of, when she found it difficult to continue her work in the US, she looked increasingly abroad as a way to kind of gain legitimacy and credibility for her cause. So she did some work in Japan, um, which was enormously influential um, among Japanese elites. Um, for sure, and maybe a larger 
part of the population as well. Um, but the other place that she looked to aside from Japan was especially India. And for Sanger, especially by the mid 20th century after 1947 um, with independence, uh, Sanger really saw India as a way to one, you know, answer the accusation that birth control demands were largely only coming from Western women. Uh, she felt very firmly the need to show that it was coming from outside the, the West or the global North. Um, and that secondly, um, she saw a, in India specifically a place where she thought her ideas would get a good reception. She first came to India in the 1930s and at the invitation of the All India Women's Conference, she had an enormously successful tour in India where she spoke to all these meetings. She famously met Gandhi and had this whole conversation with him. Um, and so she came back in the 50s with this idea that India could really help to advance a global case for birth control, that this would be the place where the world could see the effectiveness of birth control. By this point for Sanger, the effectiveness of birth control in as a poverty alleviation program, as a program for development. Um, but somebody like Danvanti Ramarao similarly, um, you know, also saw the moment of the early 1950s as a time when she could sort of show to the world the role that family planning or birth control could play in Indian economic development. So she too and, and Sanger sort of were kind of natural allies in this process. They worked together in the International Planned Parenthood Federation um, in order to make this case both in India and abroad. And of course, Ramarao herself went on to become a head of the IPPF, um, International Planned Parenthood Federation, and also to kind of move her work beyond India. Uh, I'll say just very briefly, though, you know, Marie Stopes, who also saw India as a place where, you know, she could really make a mark and she had a lot of connections in India, um, although I'm not sure she ever visited. Um, but she had a little bit of a different approach. It was less oriented towards sort of development and more oriented towards a set of claims about sexuality and health um, that Sanger also had, but made secondary by the 1950s. These women and the early feminist movement was, of course, uh, making a lot of influence in this arena. But uh, you also write about how in the late colonial period, many middle class men see themselves as important historical agents and activists of birth control. So could you discuss uh, something about who were these men and what were their efforts at popularizing birth control and what actually inspired them to take up this? Yeah, sure. Um, we talked a little bit already about Malthusianism and neo-Malthusianism as one uh, strand of argument or rationality for birth control. I think another one is eugenics, and that's where we see the involvement of a number of elite Indian men, uh, upper caste, largely Hindu. Uh, this begins in the 1920s. So Eugenics, as you know, was a global movement. It was, uh, it was sort of the science of the day, the argument that there could be a, a structured, planned, rational, scientific improvement of the human species through selective breeding. That is sort of at the core of eugenics. So in India, so in different parts of the world, eugenics landed differently and appealed to different groups of people. Um, in India, eugenics became uh, linked to a program of 
sort of national regeneration during a period of colonialism. So the argument that Indian eugenicists made was that the Indian population is physically weak, that um, they need to improve their health, and that one way to do this was through eugenic interventions in human sexuality and marriage. And so um, Indian eugenicists, when making this claim, uh, Indian eugenicists drew upon uh, or existing sort of ideologies within their society, which were largely, you know, casteist essentially, right? Sort of laying claims to the superiority of um, most many were Brahmin men, sort of, sort of, uh, sort of making claims to the superiority of the Brahmin caste through its superior so-called reproductive practices. And this was at a moment when Brahmin reproductive practices were under attack in debates about child marriage, for instance. So these, these Indian eugenicists, these upper caste Hindu men who supported eugenics, sort of were arguing that you know, Indian marriage could be reformed, that the so-called race could be improved through, you know, in some cases later marriage, in some cases they argued for um, uh, sort of different kinds of marriages that crossed some community boundaries in some cases. They made a number of case uh, arguments around sort of eugenics as sort of core for the improvement of the body, of the individual body, and therefore of the community as a whole. Um, not all eugenicists were, were birth control advocates, but many of them were because they sort of brought in birth control as a way to kind of better regulate reproduction, to space out births, to have fewer children. Um, if there was earlier marriage, uh, to have uh, a, a longer period um, before uh, women wives became pregnant um, until they were of an older age. So for all these reasons, they started to like bring birth control into their eugenics campaigns as a way to improve the race. And very quickly, um, you know, some and eugenics ideas then permeated through a range of other groups. So the All India Women's Conference, you know, similarly also espoused many of these eugenic ideas in their advocacy for birth control. The term eugenics became discredited after World War II because of the Nazi regime, but nevertheless, a lot of eugenic ideas continued forward um, into the 50s and 60s, um, just under different names or different guises. So uh, talking about eugenics, it reminds me of one of the most interesting events that you talk about in the book, which I think is the City Health and Baby Week in Madras in the 1930s, where there are awards given for the best babies in different categories, the best Musliman baby and the best uh, non-Brahmin baby and so on. So uh, to some extent, does uh, in these cases, uh, women's health and their sexual freedom is again overshadowed with the concern of producing good quality healthy babies mm -hmm. so uh, so to just uh, talk about this more how does eugenics and feminism intersect i know professor asha natkarni has a book on this but how do you feel that mm -hmm. the intersection takes place mm -hmm. yeah and i'm glad you mentioned her book as well um, and it's called eugenic feminism i believe um yeah no it's the the baby weeks are super interesting to me um, and they're global, you know, the, the, the example I talk about in the book is from Madras, as you say, but there were other ones in other parts of India, and they were also kind of a global phenomenon, or in many, many parts of the world, there were these baby weeks, which were about 
um, sort of showing the world, right, or showing communities how, um, you know, we could improve the human race through, you know, having better babies. And, and I should say, you know, that, 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 eugen that the people who drew upon eugenic ideals for a range of interventions, right? So some of them were around birth control or sort of, you know, biological reproduction. Others also drew on eugenic ideals to, to make the argument that babies needed, you know, access to, um, you know, better milk, for example. Uh, and so there were all kinds of ways in which these better baby shows sort of advocated. So they would, you know, they would promote, for example, this, in this case, the Madras government's attempts to get better milk um, to babies and, and to children. They would uh, promote health visitors who were going around to women who had recently given birth um, and, and, and sort of improving the health of the mothers and the babies. And, and these were not all, these were sometimes seen as separate questions, but sometimes maternal and infant health were correctly sort of seen as interlinked questions, right? So that healthier mothers would produce healthier babies. So this argument was one that Indian feminists also really took up that birth can they, they linked sort of birth control to better nutrition for babies um, to birth spacing right the idea that um, people would have at least three years between pregnancies they sort of brought multiple of these ideas together to say you know the way towards healthier better babies and a better future is through these interventions in both maternal and child health and the madras baby week was it was one example of doing this but of course this sort of this other underlying set of arguments about sort of improving the race and sort of these claims about caste and community were always part of these interventions. So, you know, the many baby weeks would have a best baby contest, um, like which is the healthiest, like cutest looking baby or whatever. And, you know, parents could bring their babies in to compete. And in the, in the Madras case, this was broken up, right, by these, by this understanding of sort of cast and community, you know, into best like non-Brahmin Hindu baby, for example, and, you know, best Anglo-Indian baby. It's not very easy to kind of separate out what we see as sort of like some of the racist or casteist underpinnings of eugenics from the claims about maternal and child health. They were all kind of woven together throughout this process. Yeah, and uh, since you mentioned how uh caste and uh, such social distinctions actually determine people's reproductive destinies. Uh, could you uh, chart out how birth control advocacy in colonial India was happening differently in different regions by this? I mean, for example, in the South, uh, if we talk about Periyar and the self-respect movement, uh, many leaders were explicitly talking about uh, sexual freedom for women and their autonomy over their bodies. So is this something that remains restricted to uh, certain areas? And how is this different from what was happening, say, in northern India or in Maharashtra? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if we're going to look at the colonial period, I mean, I would say, you know, what I'm most familiar with is the Tamil case. And uh, as you say, I think the self-respect movement is when when as a historian, if I sort of look around for like, where can I go to find arguments about birth control as sort of like liberational um, or centered on autonomy, 
you want I wind up anyway turning largely to the to the self-respect movement. Although since we mentioned Kamala Devi Chattopadhyaya earlier, I would say she also has a set of arguments in this period which are about birth control as a means for women's liberation um, that I find you know really fascinating. And, and this changes a little bit for Kamala Devi over time. But for sure in the in the self-respect movement and in the writings of Periyari Viramaswamy himself, but also other women activists in the movement, um, you know, like Esni Lavati, for instance, or Kunjidam Guruswami, I mean you do see a set of claims about birth control as a form of liberation for women. Um, but also birth control as a form of um, liberation for oppressed communities, right? The argument that, that sort of existing systems of capitalism and casteism are interested in, you know, just sort of producing workers for their factories, right? Workers as a means to kind of increase the profits of, of capitalist ownership. And that in fact, by taking control of the means of reproduction, as well as taking control of the means of production, right? That actually uh, lower caste um, communities can have greater autonomy over their own lives um, and over their own labor and their own work. So there is for sure that strand and the strand around women's liberation, you know, that you know, Periyad, for example, will talk about, um, you know, the right of women and of mothers to kind of choose motherhood as they will. Um, and that if motherhood is oppressive to them, if, the, if motherhood is an ideology and a structure is oppressive to them, then let them cease to be mothers, right? Let them cease to have children. So there's some pretty radical um, arguments there. I would add, however, right, sort of a cautionary tale against the idea that there were sort of these simply liberating ideas that faded away. You know, I think even at the time when Periyad um, and the self-respect movement were sort of at their most radical on birth control, and that's in the early 1930s, they were at the same time, they were not um, ignorant of eugenic ideas. You know, eugenic ideas are definitely part of a lot of self-respect writing at this time, just as they are writing from, you know, uh, from many other parts of India during this period. Um, there are also the, the Malthusian arguments around population also reemerge within self-respect writing, you know, that there, you know, there are too many people, this is the cause of poverty that we need to control population. That idea is also present. So I think what's interesting about self-respect is you can sort of find these multiple strands kind of coexisting and becoming more or less dominant in different people's writing and work and activism at particular times. Nevertheless, if we want to go to the regional question, right, like what's going on, you know, in other parts of India and how does that compare to the Tamil case, you know, um, Berdugar, you know, if we want to think about, you know, sort of Marathi uh, language writing work and politics in this time period, you know, Ambedkar also has a series of very interesting arguments around birth control that in some ways mirror what we see with the self-respect movement in the sense of sort of both seeing birth control as a potential source of autonomy, not just for women, but, you know, specifically with Dalit communities asserting control over their own means of production and their own means of reproduction. You know, that is sort of shot through in Ambedkar and, and other Marathi sort of writers in his sphere in this time period. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on sort of like Hindi speaking North India in this regard, but I have not found 
that same critique in this 1920s, 1930s period in other parts of India. I think there are always places you can find isolated examples of people making a case for birth control as a, as a model of liberation, but certainly not in the widespread or organized way that you find in self-respect or in the pretty coherent and longstanding way you find with someone like Ambedkar. Um, instead, there's like sporadic mentions um, but it doesn't become the central way in which birth control becomes part of public discourse. It's eugenics and neo-Malthusianism that drive the public discourse in these other places even more. I think even Ambedkar's ideas and writings related to eugenics are also very interesting, which uh, come up around this time. But uh, moving on, I uh, what I find really interesting is also how people who are advocating uh, for birth control are perceived by others in the society, because this is something which is closely related to uh, sexual intercourse and something which is thought of to be private within the family. Uh, for example, you have written about this in the book and even earlier, and it'll be great if you could take us through the uh, trials of Annie Basent and Charles Bradlaugh because uh, they had to uh, face criticism from others in the society. And uh, do we see uh, more of this censure even in the Indian context when people are advocating? Yeah, um, I would say, I'll, I'll come back to Annie Basant in a second, but I, I would first say that some of what we've been talking about, right? The eugenic set of arguments for birth control, the neo-Malthusian arguments for birth control were in some ways actually helped to secure legitimacy for birth control. Because as you say, right? The argument is that by very, by just simply mentioning birth control or sort of talking about sexuality in a public way or implying something about sexuality in a public way, you're already, you know, uh, sort of on the edge here, right? That you're on the edge of, uh, you know, not being respectable. And so, uh, you know, one of the interesting things that many activists um, from a variety of political perspectives, both women and men, um, one of the things that they say by the, by the early to mid 20th century is that, no, we're not talking about, you know, listen, we're not talking about birth control as, you know, something for, you know, uh, women to have sex outside of marriage. That's not what we're talking about. We're actually saying that birth control will solidify marriage by allowing a healthy sexuality, um, by which what they mean by a healthy sexuality is sort of monogamous sex, uh, sexual intercourse within, uh, within legal marriage uh, and heterosexual intercourse, right? Because, um, sort of non-heteronormative sexual intimacies are simultaneously sort of stigmatized and marginalized in this process. So this becomes a way to assert the respectability of birth control. And the argument around development and the economy uh, solidifies this even further, right? We're not, you know, so let's say we're not looking to birth control as, you know, about like westernizing quote unquote, our Indian women, you know, to go out and like have fun um, sexually, but rather what we're saying is, you know, this is important for our nation's economy, for countering poverty and so on. 
So I think it, it serves as a really kind of legitimizing, um, these ideologies serve as kind of legitimizing ways for birth control to enter into the public discourse. It's a legitimate topic to talk about publicly because it's supposedly about the economy and about health and, and all these other things um, and about marriage and family and not about sort of individual pleasure or desire or anything like that. Um, and we can find that sort of pattern repeating itself um, so we see that a lot in the Indian case, especially through the 1920s and 30s, as birth control becomes a topic of public discourse for the first time. But um, the, the Annie Besant case, um, which is in the late 19th century, in the 1870s, sort of echoes this as well. Um, and I've written about this both in the book, but at, at greater length elsewhere. You know, so Annie Besant, for folks who don't know, um, I think most of your listeners will have heard of her in the context of Indian nationalism and the yeah. Home Rule Leagues, right? In the early 20th century. But before that, Annie Besant was a labor rights organizer in the UK. She helped to organize um, a major um, strike of women workers. And then um, she was sort of, a, sort of a political radical for a while. And then she uh, later joined the Theosophical Society and it's when she joined the Theosophical Society that she moved to India and sort of started her new life, right, as an Indian nationalist of sorts. But anyway, in this earlier period in the 1870s, when she was sort of more of a workers' rights and sort of social radical, she also, Besant, um, espoused birth control along with her associate, a political associate, Charles Bradlaugh. And in England at that time, there was a law um, that you could not, uh, it was that there were obscenity laws that could be used to prosecute people who talked about birth control. So going back to the respectability politics here, right? The discussion of birth control was sort of deemed obscene. And uh, so Besant and Broadwell were brought to trial because they published a book that described methods of birth control. Um, and uh, so they were tried under this uh, obscenity law and Besant makes a really interesting argument here, right? She, all, she sort of turns to Neo-Malthusianism and develops Neo-Malthusianism herself to say, you know what, we cannot, this is not obscene. Talking about birth control is not obscene because it's actually important for women's health and for uh, countering poverty, right? There's all these women who have families that are too large and for Besant, this was the cause of their poverty. And so they need access to information about birth control. Interestingly, um, in her trial, Besant talks about poverty in Britain. So in England, Ireland, and Scotland, um, and Wales. Uh, so she, she focuses her case on Britain. But soon after that, uh, there was a famine in India in the 1870s. And Besant then sort of turns to Indi the Indian case to further her arguments about birth control and to say, look, Look at the famine in India, look at the starvation and death and suffering. They need birth control there too. It's the responsibility of the British Empire um, to sort of bring birth control to India. So again, it's 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 sort of situated by referring to um, poverty, economy, development, Besant was sort of making the case for the respectability of birth control. That it's not just about private desire, um, but it's sort of a social necessity and a social good. Um, and she had many followers in India, including in Madras, which started its own sort of Malthusian league um, following along from Besant. So if we swiftly move into the post-independence period in India, so uh, 
there are instances in the book where you mention that uh, when advocates were going into say rural areas there were a lot of rumors among the women for example you write about when sk khan visits uh, nainital so the women there feel that uh, birth control will be related to a lot of injection or make you completely incapable of having children from then so at this point in time even after independence there are large populations in india that are not educated who are living in uh, really poor economic conditions so how did they perceive these birth control programs yeah that's a difficult question in some ways because we don't necessarily have uh or at least i wasn't able to find for the 1950s and early 60s a lot of um a lot of sources right historical sources if you want to think about historical methods um to really document the arguments and ideas of the women who were targeted by state led or top down birth control programs we have a better sense of this for a later period but certainly for this early time um with early in the history of the indian family planning program the voices that we get from women uh who are targeted tend to be sort of filtered through the family planner so you know these usually women family planners go out into rural areas and they try to spread the idea of birth control and they often are very frustrated by the lack of reception um and then they kind of ascribe motivations to the women who rejected their ideas so we always have to take that with a grain of salt right is that we're hearing these voices through the reporting of others and so i'm wary of sort of just sort of taking them at face value you know um and many times you hear you know for example family planners will complain about rumor you know what they call rumor and sure i'm sure there were rumors about things um about family planners but often these family planners disregarded the very real concerns that women had right so one of these concerns tended to be well actually the value ascribed to children especially in in agrarian societies right the very need for children as part of the agricultural labor force as part of sustaining parents in their old age um there's all kind of reasons why a large family or having many children could be economically and emotionally sort of hugely beneficial to these families and family planners tended not to want to hear that right they sort of went in the idea with the small families is the happy family and also the prosperous family so um the objections that came from women who felt that their real conditions of their lives did not lead them to want to have only two children tend to be sort of dismissed or ignored or sort of considered rumor i think another sort of structural sort of problem within the indian family planning programs from the outset was to prioritize controlling fertility over maternal and child health and so these sometimes family planners would go in and say you know women wanted help with infertility or they wanted support you know they wanted access to better milk and food for their children but we were not able to provide that right again because the structures of the family planning bureaucracies separated out health interventions from contraceptive interventions by the mid 1960s this became 
sort of codified within the structures of maternal and child health um, as they were put forward through primary health centers. So um, the budget for family planning became at the federal level, the central level became separated out from the budget for maternal and child health. So all of these reasons sort of, I think rightfully made many women wary of the interventions that were coming in in the name of controlling fertility without actually doing a whole lot, if anything, to improve their own sort of reproductive health or the health of their children. So to come back, I think for sure there were all kinds of potential misconceptions and rumors about how these pro about how contraception worked, for example, or you know what its um, health impacts would be. Um, but I'm unconvinced that that's the reason for women's hesitation and resistance. I think there's a lot more structural reasons for that. And and that is very interesting how you mentioned that uh, there were budget allocations and how always like finances and uh, uh, things like that have to do with uh, what programs or policies are controlling people's lives. And uh, I think what most people uh, would think about when we talk about birth control uh, post-independence is the emergency period when there were a lot of forced sterilizations across the country. And uh, uh, in this regard, because this period gained a lot more importance and a lot more discussion when this happened, do you feel that because this was a period when mass vasectomies were targeting men, uh, it gained uh, much more importance because women's bodies were already embattled spaces for uh, decades before this. So they were being targeted with pills and IUDs and things like that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely true. And it's something I think a lot about in the book, you know, many people, uh, you know, tend to assume that family planning so state led top down population control, right, that goes by the name of family planning, um, tend to think that that started almost in the emergency. And of course, it didn't. Um, so every single aspect of or most every single aspect of uh, sort of emergency population control already existed. So the idea of mass uh, sterilization camps, including uh, mass vasectomy camps for men already existed um, by the 1960s. The interventions in women's fertility existed from the state, from state-led programs from the 1950s onwards. The underlying argument that controlling population growth was a central element to promoting economic development and alleviating poverty in India existed from the mid 20th century on. So all of those ideas existed. So then the question does remain, so what's different about the emergency? And I think there are a couple of things that are different, you know, in addition to the question of men, which I'll come to. I think one core difference, of course, is the overall structures of coercion that develop in the emergency, not just about family planning. Right. And I think that's that's actually really important to emphasize. Right. This is a period when um, many civil rights are suspended. Political activists are in prison. I mean, you know, all of this. Right. So that that this becomes the political context in which a top down population control program becomes instituted. So I think the there were coercive elements of of um, population control through the 1960s. And they continued in the emergency, except in the emergency, there were all these additional structures of coercion within, within which sort of family planning 
or population control entered. So I think that's immensely important. You know, I think secondly, um, you know, in Delhi in particular, um, family planning and slum clearance sort of went hand in hand, right? Again, sort of raising the possibilities for coercion. But I think all that is true. Having said that, I think the, the third question is around this sort of massive turn towards men. So vasectomy camps existed before the emergency and they, they again were sort of pushing sort of mass sterilization with tens of thousands of people of men being sterilized. So that happened, um, but, in, but of course that really increased um, and vasectomies as a percentage of sterilizations really increased as well. Um, so that they became a, a larger percentage um, than uh, sterilization and surgical sterilization for women. So I think this is after the emergency, this is what drew a lot of attention. So I argue in the, or I think in the book about how um, in the drive to kind of return to quote unquote normal post-emergency, the Janta government, um, you know, sort of stigmatizes vasectomy and male sterilization as the sort of abnormal excess of the emergency, but largely leaves unquestioned interventions in women's bodies, which were of course surgical sterilization, but also um, IUDs, um, much more so even than the pill, which was, which was not what a huge part of the state-sponsored family planning programs in those period but definitely the IUD, right? And sort of they normalize that level of intervention in women's bodies while saying that, well, the vasectomy was the, was the abnormal, rather than, for example, questioning the entire coercive apparatus, right? Rather than saying, um, is this a system that's truly based on choice or voluntarism um, with the idea of support for multiple choices and support for maternal and child health? or women's health more generally. So turning away from the entire structure of coercion, they instead just sort of focus on this procedure of vasectomy and say, okay, that was the problem, um, which enables, of course, the IUD insertions and the uh, tubal ligations for women to continue, you know, largely unabated um, post-emergency as well. And I think we could talk more about the IUDs because you uh, mentioned and many other scholars have also argued that uh, IUDs were actually disindividualizing women's bodies and impacting them in uh, several ways. And uh, the effects were very disastrous for some women. And this method still continues as uh, something promoted in government hospitals, especially for the poor sections of the population. Yeah, so I mean, the IUD was designed as a population control method. Um, and I say that rather than as a birth control method, by what I mean to say is that its goal was population control on the mass level. Now, this is not to say that women cannot take the IUD and use it for their own purposes in order to control their own fertility. And I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, there are women who want to control their fertility and should have the right to do so, right? Um, the problem is the coercive structure of the programs and the potentially coercive design of some of the technologies. So the IUD, you know, was designed um, through funding by an organization called the Population Council here in the United States. Um, with the goal of coming up with a method 
that could be used rapidly at a mass scale to control population in the global south. So um, it was tested out in places like Puerto Rico, um, as well as in India, as sort of places that were seen as sort of uh, central to the population problem globally. Um, and then in the Indian case, they were, uh, production was ramped up of the IUD very rapidly in the mid to late 60s. And they were these massive camps um, designed to sort of get as many women fitted with the IUD as possible. So the reason I say that it was designed as a population control measure was that unlike something like the pill or unlike barrier methods, you know, like condoms or, or diaphragms, which were used before, um, these were methods that were, uh, a person could make a decision to get an IUD, but then once they had one, they were sort of stuck with it until it could be removed, um, typically by a medical professional of some kind. And so for proponents, population control proponents of the idea of the IUD, the point was, you know what, we can, we can insert these things. Women don't need to make a daily choice on whether to use them or not. They're remarkably effective at preventing conception. Um, and so it's just a, a quick and so-called easy way you know, to get sort of masses of women um, unable to reproduce for set periods of time, right, for the long term. And so this was why those design features appeal to population controllers more than, for example, the pill, which was like a daily thing. So the design features were already about the goal of reducing fertility on a mass scale rather than promoting sort of individual choice. And then when this becomes linked up with a top-down family planning program that doesn't necessarily have enough um, healthcare practitioners to address the concerns of every woman, there were some instances of sort of hasty insertions. The initial IUDs arrived from the US without sterilized inserters. I mean, the, the potential problems for women's health becomes immense. So again, I don't want to say the IUD as a technology necessarily can't be used in other ways. Of course it can be, and of course it can be used um, in directions that promote reproductive autonomy. But the ways in which it was designed and the ways in which it was implemented in the Indian case, which were these top-down, fairly coercive programs that sometimes disregarded the health of women, um, meant that it sort of was ready to kind of sacrifice individual women's reproductive health and sometimes individual women's lives in the pursuit of sort of rapid population control. Yeah, absolutely. So I think to move towards the end of our discussion, I'd like you to say something about how reproductive politics and the concern about population affecting the economy or more recently, the planet's environment and so on are still continuing in the contemporary times. And uh, there are communities and people who believe that people from a certain caste, class or religion are quote unquote producing too many children. Mm -hmm. So this goes on. Yes, for sure. I mean, one kind of common thread that we can see throughout this, the whole of the 20th century, I would argue, and into the 21st is it's always other people, right? Who are supposedly producing too many children. Um, and so it's become a way to stigmatize particular populations. We know from the work of many scholars about sort of the communalization of demography, right? The assumption um, in the Indian case that Muslim communities are, you know, producing too many children. There's arguments about 
you know, lower caste communities. So it's about sort of stigmatizing these communities, right? Sort of using this claim about quote unquote, too many children as part of marginalizing and stigmatizing groups who are seen as then, you know, against national development goals and anti-national itself. So this is, this is um, a longstanding, right, and deeply kind of troubling development around the communalization of, of demography and of fertility. I think another place where this legacy continues is the shift, uh, as you say, to in, in terms of uh, a growing focus on um, climate change and mitigating climate change. So again, that's an example of, of sort of taking a very real problem, right? But ascribing to it, I would argue, sort of incorrect solutions. So the argument here, of course, is that one way to mitigate climate change is to slow the growth of population. And once again, the argument is always about other people's population, right? It's that other people are having too many children and their population needs to be controlled. It's, it's very rarely, if ever, about the self, right? About the speaker who's making this claim. So again, it tends to sort of stigmatize communities that are already marginalized, both within India and globally. So here I would say, you know, climate change is, is a real issue, um, but, the, but the populations that are blamed for climate change are the ones who are least responsible, right, for the emission of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So it's the wealthiest countries and consumers in the wealthiest countries and elite populations and you know, corporations that are most responsible for the climate crisis, and yet it's the poorest and most vulnerable women globally, if we think about it, tends to be women in, in uh, parts of Africa with high birth rates who tend to be blamed for the crisis, right, or whose bodies now become targeted for intervention on the grounds that, well, if we control their population, we can slow the, the rate of global emissions which is a false equivalence, right? It is, <clears throat> you have to look to where the problem is coming from in order to find the solution, rather than, of course, scapegoating, um, you know, largely poor, often marginalized women for their fertility. Um, and, yet, and yet this is seen, uh, the sort of resurgence of claims to population control now in the last 10 to 20 years has often been linked to these claims about climate change. And I think, I would make the argument that it's important to counter this narrative for two reasons. One is it's not an effective response to climate change. And two, it's not, um, it's not gonna promote reproductive justice, right? It's not going to promote reproductive autonomy um, or choice or decision-making for people, including women, uh, to sort of blame them for the climate crisis or blame their fertility for the climate crisis. We need to both, offer, I would argue, right, offer means of fertility control, offer birth control to those who want it, um, and address climate change as a separate phenomenon, um, and not assume that, 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 you know, one is to blame for the other. Yeah, exactly, and I think that uh, puts the entire discussion into the context of reproductive justice and rights and how important they are. Uh, so with this, we come to the end of our discussion. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.